Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. Just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg had an impact on American life that few Supreme Court justices are ever able to achieve during their careers. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's true that most Americans would struggle to name more than just a few of the justices who sit on the highest court in our country. But everybody really knew who Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. She had achieved absolute hero status uh, in our culture before she died. Uh, Before and during her appointment to the court, of course, her work had her fighting for and winning major legal victories in the pursuit of gender equality. NPR's Nina Totenberg called Ginsburg the architect of the legal fight for women's rights in the 1970s. Later on the court, she became a powerful voice of dissent against a very powerful and long-standing conservative majority. And later in her career, she helped establish important protections for vulnerable Americans by joining majorities on major cases, including the one that provided protections for same-sex marriages, that upheld the Affordable Care Act and banned workplace discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Her death last year after a long battle with cancer was a pretty major blow to the court and to progressives across the country. But before her death, she was helping to write and curate a new book that would help preserve her legacy in her own words and writings. That book, which is titled Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue, a life's work fighting for a more perfect union, is now available. It was co-written by Justice Ginsburg's friend and former clerk, Amanda L. Tyler, who is a professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Professor Tyler joins me now to talk about the book and Ginsburg's life and career. Amanda Tyler, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So I want to, of course, dive into the meat of the book in in, in a bit. But first... Tell our listeners a little more about your personal relationship with Justice Ginsburg. You clerked with her in the 1999-2000 term. What was that like? And talk about the friendship that grew out of that clerkship. Clerking for Justice Ginsburg was so special and just such a truly awesome experience because she really took her clerks under her wing and mentored us and taught us so much. I could I could honestly talk for hours about everything that she taught me in that year and, and in the years that followed. But what I remember very uh, specifically at this moment in terms of the clerkship was how she really modeled how to think about the law. And she also modeled for us how to live a good and full life. So on the law, she that was a year that the court heard a lot of really big constitutional law cases. It was the year before Bush versus Gore. So it wasn't, you know, that year gets a lot of attention. But the year that we were there, there were huge cases about race, about abortion, about um, the balance of authority between the federal government and the state governments. So many interesting cases. And watching her navigate how to think about those cases was was really incredible. 
Um, one of the things that she taught her clerks was how important it was to think about how the law affected the real lives of people. And time and again, when you watched her approach a case, you realized that that was a really important component to how she did so. And another thing about the clerkship was that she would go back and forth with you about draft opinions many, many times. She had exacting, <laughs> very, very high standards. But she would sit down with you when she marked up an opinion that you'd given her, a draft that you'd given her, and she would walk you through why she suggested we make the changes we make. And that was the teaching component to it. She really invested the time in not just getting work product out of her clerks, but sitting down with them and teaching them why she did things a certain way. And all of us, I think, emerged far better writers and far more thoughtful about the law as a result. Hmm. And then as with all of her law clerks in the years that followed, I kept in touch and um, had the opportunity to spend uh, many occasions in her presence, have dinner with her, have a visit where I taught um, and talked to my students, among other things. And she was a, a real champion for her law clerks. If we were up for a job, she would pick up the phone and, and call in support. She would send gifts on the occasions that were happy. So, for example, she had T-shirts made that said RBG Grand Clerk. And if you had a child, <laughs> you would get one of those in the mail. And I have to say, by by the time my second child was born, I, I said, where's that T-shirt? I can't <laughs> wait to get it. Um, so that that's who she was. And she also would send notes when times were difficult, um, notes of support that really meant a lot and, and helped carry you through difficult times. So, so the, the year that you clerk for her, she's relatively new uh, to the court. Uh, and of course, over the next 20 years, her role in sort of American culture, I think, uh, is probably best described as, as, as changing, that, that she yes. becomes a, a, a symbol uh, of so many things about the court and eclipses just about every other member by the time uh, by the time she 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 dies. I mean, I she she probably is more recognizable than than any of the others. And and I always wondered uh, how that how that uh, sat with her that that uh, she became that kind uh, of symbol. I mean, one of the things. That, that you emphasize in the book is this incredible work ethic that Justice Ginsburg had and the focus on the work. Uh, but this this persona that grew up around her was really, really different from that. And I always kind of wondered how she how she reconciled that with uh, with the rest of what she was up to. She was all about the work, as you say, and, and hopefully that does come through in, in the book. She was someone who just put her nose down every day and, and worked hard. She was profoundly committed to public service and trying to use her talents to make a contribution. But you're right, at, at some point, uh, and this is after I clerked for her, she becomes the notorious RBG. <laughs> and it, it's funny because when the law clerks, when we're together, 
uh, we sort of put ourselves, we're, we're all one big family, but we put ourselves in the pre-notorious camp and the post-notorious camp. And I think the clerkship was different <laughs> depending on whether you were, you were before or after. For those of us who were before, we have two reactions. The first is um, we knew this. We knew how awesome she was. What took the rest of you so long? <laughs> uh, but we were also very surprised because she's the last person you ever would have thought would explode into this pop cultural icon. I think for her, it never changed in the sense that it was always just about doing the work and trying to make a contribution. That being said, I think, I think she enjoyed it a little bit. And, and I think what she enjoyed about being the notorious RBG, but I should say, I think she was very surprised by it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think what she enjoyed was that she'd always tried to write her opinions in a way that were that made them accessible to the public. She um, really cared about the public being consumers of the court's work, caring about what the court was doing. And she also um, so so I think for the for for the first point, when she became the notorious RBG, the public did start to pay more attention Mm -hmm. to the court. And I think she thought that was a good thing. And the other thing that came out of it that I think she really loved was how younger people were paying attention to the court and, and paying attention to the issues about which she cared so deeply. And I remember the last time I was in her chambers in her office, she had a picture on her desk of herself in her robe with a, with a collar on and she was standing with a little girl who was dressed up as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and I just thought that was really interesting and, and special how she had that picture. It wasn't someone she knew, to the best of my knowledge. It was it was just some kid who was looking up to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the justice. And I think she really liked that. She liked that her work was inspiring next generations. And I think one of the reasons that she enjoyed working on the book was that there was a hope that the book would help inspire future generations. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about the work of the book and the story behind it. How and why did you and Justice Ginsburg decide that this is something you wanted to do and to publish? She came out to visit UC Berkeley in the fall of 2019 And actually, the visit was delayed because she was supposed to come in January of 2019. And in December of 2018, they discovered, doctors discovered lung cancer in her left lung. So she had to have surgery for that. And she was uh, reluctant, actually, to cancel. (laughs) Uh, I and many others said, you shouldn't be traveling. You should just rest and, and recuperate. Eventually, she did relent, but she was very eager to reschedule. Now, why is that? That is because she was coming to Berkeley to honor her longtime friend, Herma Hill Kay, who had been the first woman law dean at Berkeley Law, the second woman on our faculty. But more importantly, Herma and Justice Ginsburg had written, along with a third co-author, Kenneth Davidson, the first casebook on sex discrimination in the law essentially founding the field in the early 1970s. So this was a really important friendship in Justice Ginsburg's life and a a working relationship as well. And Herma had passed away in 2017, and the justice was invited to come give the first annual Herma Hill K. Memorial Lecture. And it was really important to her to come and honor her friend. 
we had decided in conversation, she had suggested, why don't, instead of me giving a, a lengthy full standing lecture, why don't you and I have a conversation? And I was only too happy to do that because I had done it once before and it was really fun to talk with her about her life. And so we planned a conversation that covered her life starting from her childhood all the way to her time on the court and talked about her family and talked about battling cancer and, and so many other things. And once we had that planned, in the meantime, we learned that the University of California Press was considering publishing Herma's final book, a project on which Herma had worked for many, many years, and a project that was very important to Justice Ginsburg because first, Justice Ginsburg had written the introduction to it, but second, and much more importantly to the justice, the book chronicled the stories of the first American women law professors who had paved the way for Herma and the Justice to enter the legal academy. And I, I should say myself as well. And so the Justice and I were talking and we thought, uh, knowing that other publishers had passed on Herma's book, that maybe we could entice the University of California to publish it if we offered them a book as well. And so that's what we did. We, we went to the, the press and we said, how about we turn our conversation into a book project? And if you like the idea, what we would like is for it to be part of a new series that has it releasing alongside Paving the Way by Herma Hill Kay. And to our great delight, the press went for the idea. We had a, a great deal of, of fun, and, and I'll, I'll say it was just really a huge privilege to work with the justice on this, putting together our book. And I'm just really pleased to be able to say that both books are releasing alongside one another this spring. Yeah. So it's an unorthodox approach to telling someone's story. There's a mix of uh, some conversation, uh, recorded kind of conversation, uh, lots of documents that uh, that sort of illustrate the way Justice Ginsburg thought and, and wrote. But talk about picking the materials that uh, that that appear here and and how you how you thought that all through that was really fun i mean it just the whole part of working with her for a, another time 20 years after being her law clerk was so much fun we knew that the book, the conversation would be the anchor of the book and what i love about that is that it has her telling her life story in her own words mm-hmm. And then the idea was, let's pick materials that complement what we've laid out. And so there's a section of the book on her as an advocate. And then there's a section of, a book, of the book on her as a justice. And then there's a final section that sort of pulls the various parts of her life together in her own words through her final speeches. And you see in those someone who is very much reflective on the arc of her life. And I think that actually is my favorite part of the book. But once we had decided on the structure of the book, then it was a really fun conversation about, okay, what do we include? What don't we include? And for the advocate part of the book, what I love, and I think is my favorite part of it, is that we include the very first brief that she ever filed in a gender discrimination suit. And that brief was really special to her because it was a brief that she wrote with her, her late husband, Marty Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. And 
that is a huge part of her story, not just that she was this great advocate for gender equality, but her marriage was central to her identity. She said uh, on occasion to her clerks, my marriage is the most important thing in my life and my family. And it's just a really special story that she and Marty did this case together. It's featured in the movie On the Basis of Sex, which was, interestingly enough, I don't know if people know this, written by their nephew. So um, it's a movie that is very much about both the marriage and the case. And, and I love that we were able to publish this brief, which had never before been published, because it really lays out the game plan, the strategy that she's going to follow in the 1970s to try and convince courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, that gender discrimination is not okay. And the court needs to look with very uh, rigorous scrutiny at classifications in the law that draw distinctions based on gender. And I can say a lot more about that if you'd like, but getting back to how we composed the book, she then said, well, okay, uh, here are my favorite arguments that I had before the court. And so it was fun to be able to talk with her about that because she's not someone who told war stories. So for a lot of her law clerks, we never got in real time as her clerks to get her talking about her time in the 70s and all that she accomplished. So this was really, really fun to get her to talk about that with me. And and why? Why is this your favorite argument? So, for example, um, we have in there the Frontiero argument, which was the very first argument that she had before the Supreme Court. And she talks in our conversation about that and talks about how remarkable it was that she spoke uninterrupted for over 10 minutes. If you've ever watched the Supreme Court of late, that just does not happen. No, I mean, the doesn't. court recently had to institute rules that the justices can't interrupt speakers for a couple of minutes when they start because it had gotten so bad. <laughs> so, um, you know, she talks in the book about how she started to wonder if they were even listening to her. <laughs> and for that reason, she then decided to quote Sarah Grimke's show-stopping line that all we ask is that men take their feet off our necks. And, and she, she, again, she just wanted to make sure they were paying attention. <laughs> so then in the, the rest of the book, uh, again, that was really fun because I got to ask her, okay, of all the opinions you've ever written, and as a justice, she wrote over 480. Mm-hmm. As a federal judge in the span of four years, she wrote over a thousand opinions. Which are your very favorites? And at first she was really reluctant to say, she said, that's a bit like asking me to pick my favorite grandchildren. But eventually she did. And what's really interesting is that over the summer and this past summer, I remember going back to her and saying, you know, hey, Justice, how about we add this one? Or how about we add this one? And she said, nope, these are the four. These are the four opinions that if someone reads nothing else from my time on the court, I hope they'll read these four. And so that was really special. And we included also the bench statements that she read when she delivered or when the court handed down the opinions so that someone could see how she would describe it in her own words, her position uh, in brief. And uh, so those are really special. And then finally, the, the speeches, the final speeches that she gave, there's, there's one at the beginning about Herma and then the ones at the end talk about her role models as a child, her particularly Jewish female role models, talk about how uh, the influence of Justice Brandeis was strong in her life, both as an advocate and as a justice. And then very beautifully at the end, she talks about her family and she talks about 
how proud she is and how special it is that only in America, the child of an immigrant could wind up on the Supreme Court. Mm. And that's where the book was supposed to end. Um, but unfortunately, I had to write an afterward as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Amanda Tyler, the co-author of the new book, Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue, with late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we want to hear from you. What do you think about the life and legacy of the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg? How do you view her legacy? And what do you think we could all learn from her life and her work? 313 577 1019 is always the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guest is Amanda L. Tyler, professor of law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law and co-author of the new book, Justice, Justice Thou Shalt Pursue, with late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whom Amanda L. Tyler clerked for in the 1999-2000 term at the Supreme Court. Uh, We want to hear from you this hour as well. What do you think about the life and legacy of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Uh, How do you view that legacy? And what do you think we could all learn from her life and her work? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, I mean, I, I want to ask you about um, about the role that Justice Ginsburg came to play on the Supreme Court. And, you know, I've always kind of put her in the same category in terms of uh, pre-Supreme Court work with someone like uh, with someone like Thurgood Marshall, who was also uh, a longtime advocate, uh, a groundbreaking advocate, and then joins the court and finds the role, I think, a little bit confining uh, because it's so different from from what he was he was doing before. And certainly in the later years, as the as the court moved more in a, in a more conservative uh, direction, I, I think Marshall made his his frustrations really clear. Um, we didn't hear that same kind of frustration publicly from from Justice Ginsburg, but but I wonder if those who knew her best uh, were aware of a frustration or maybe a lament about being a member of the court versus an advocate who's petitioning the court to make changes and and being successful in those petitions in a way that you're not successful uh, as a member of the minority uh, uh, on the bench. You know, the analogy to Thurgood Marshall is a strong one, particularly when you think about what each of them accomplished as advocates. Although I will say the justice emphasized time and again that her career as an advocate was different than his insofar as he was living with death threats mm-hmm. as he was trying to dismantle race discrimination, and yes. she never encountered anything like that. 
but you're you're right in you know it, in some respects there is an analogy to be drawn in terms of where they were on the court law students you know to whom i assign uh, reading constitutional law decisions they're often reading cases with those two in dissent mm-hmm. <laughs> they strong uh, dissent yeah strong dissent <laughs> um what is interesting about justice ginsburg and speaking just to her is uh, like, but but I will say, like Justice Marshall, she did not like to lose. Nobody likes to lose, and uh, she she really didn't like to lose at the court. But she was she had this fierce optimism about her, and I think it's it's something that that those of us who worked for her got to see and really come to appreciate. So. If you look at the book, she's included a number of dissents. Is she including them because she's still angry about losing? Maybe a little. But I think one of the main reasons she included those was to say, I'm not giving up. Uh, You know, hopefully people will read these dissents and they will see that this is a battle that we need to keep fighting. And she talked about her dissents as uh, written for the future. She was never one to give up. And I think her life had shown her that if you stay the course, often eventually you can you can accomplish what you set out to do. Maybe not overnight. It might take a few decades, uh, but we'll get there. That was that was how she thought about things. Hmm. And and did she embrace that role or was it something of a burden? to carry on the court, especially as uh, the court moved further and further right uh, the, the longer she was there. I mean, uh, the, the, the progressive minority is smaller now than it's been uh, in, the, in the last 40 years on the, on the court, and she was uh, a part of that for, for a brief time. Did, did, she, did she ever feel like uh, it just was, was more than any one justice uh, might be asked to bear? I never got that sense from her. And it, and again, it, it, it's because she, she had this optimism and, and she was unflappable in that regard. That's not to say that she didn't like, uh, that she didn't like, um, excuse me, that's not to say that she liked losing. She mm-hmm. hated losing. Uh, but the other thing about her is that, and, and the year that I clerked for her, she was in the minority of a very substantial number of five to four constitutional law decisions. And, you know, it would come down, the votes would be, would be lodged. You'd try to get somebody to move uh, that, that year. Usually that meant trying to get justice Kennedy or justice O'Connor to change their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now it's a different justice, but you would lose and she'd say, all right, let's, let's turn to the next case. And that was her approach. You just keep your nose down and you do the work and you keep trying and you don't give up and you don't get exasperated. She was um, someone who, and she spoke about this. This is something her mother taught her. She just didn't give time over to emotions that were not constructive. Justice Ginsburg is somebody who used to take a flashlight with her to the movies to, to work during the previews. <laughs> this is someone who made the most of every minute and was constructive with every minute of her life. And so that carried her through, I think, what were difficult years. 
I think the hardest years for her on the court were the years when she was the only woman Mm -hmm. because she felt an extra burden to try and bring a perspective to the court that no one else on the court could bring. So those she did say publicly were very frustrating years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I also always marvel uh, somewhat at the profound friendship she had with, uh, with Antonin Scalia, who is not just, you know, a former conservative member of the court, but in many ways, uh, the father of, uh, of much of legal conservatism that, uh, that we see dominating the court now. And the, the, the genuine nature of that friendship, I think, really illustrates some of what you're saying about being able to keep perspective, uh, being able to focus, and not becoming overly emotional about uh, the winning or losing, that, that life is about other things as well, that there's a broader perspective to bring to things. And that means you can be friends with somebody who you have intensely bitter disagreements. <laughs> it, it would be hard for them to have disagreed more on how to interpret the Constitution. <laughs> I, I, I can remember only a handful of cases where they were lined up together in constitutional law cases, um, particularly the year that I clerked for her. I can think of only one. Um, And that was one of those cases where the court was just completely jumbled. But they they both talked about how their friendship was built on a huge amount of common ground. So, you know, they both loved their families. They both loved opera. They They both were from New York. He was from Queens. She was from Brooklyn. And they both said this about each other. We both love the Constitution in this country. And so that was the basis, the foundation of the friendship. And they also said, when we disagree, we're disagreeing with ideas. We're not disagreeing with a person. And they were both able to keep that perspective. And it's quite remarkable because when you think about, for example, her great opinion in the Virginia Military Institute case, Mm -hmm. holding that the state of Virginia must open up this rigorous and storied academy to women Justice Scalia is the only dissenter, and his dissent is a whopper. As she as she called it, it was a zinger. Mm. It it is it is no holds barred. But you know they were great friends after that, and 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 through many other disagreements, and it really was based on that common ground. He's quoted as having said, "Some things are more important than votes," mm. and uh, I th- I think that that is is quite remarkable. They, they had a presumption of each other that they were each acting in good faith. And I think that went a long way. Mm, yeah. Uh, caller Linda could not stay on the line, but called to ask why Justice Ginsburg did not retire when President Obama was in office. Uh, she notes that uh, Thurgood Marshall also missed opportunity uh, that she thought, uh, and that was what brought Clarence Thomas to the court. There was not a Democratic president uh, before um, George W. Bush that might have uh, filled Thurgood Marshall's seat with somebody different. Um, but in this case, it's a question that a lot of uh, a lot of people ask. Uh, they go back to the early days of the second term of the Obama presidency and wonder whether she talked about retiring and, and what led her to, I guess, take the risk that uh, if she didn't, 
a Republican would fill her seat and and change the balance of things on the court. I can only say what she said publicly, which is at the time people were encouraging her to retire. And she said, I'm, I'm full steam and I'm, I think I'm making a contribution and I don't feel like I've missed a step. And that's, you know, that's what she said and that's what she believed. And so she kept doing the work. Um, I think she's someone who just really loved doing the work. She loved being a public servant. And so what I see in those comments is someone who just really loved her work and, and the idea of walking away from it, I think was really hard for her. Mm. And she also more importantly felt like she still had a contribution to make. You know, I, I, I've also always thought that, you know, the, the, the court is such a, an unusual space, not just in Washington, but uh, throughout the country. And, and it is a very isolated space. uh, And, the work there is often very isolating. And I think over time, it becomes easy to, to lose perspective about life outside the court. And that's not a criticism. I think it's just an observation that, that the court becomes their lives in a different way than other public service uh, changes people. And, and, you know, the reason that so many of them stay as long as they do is because I think it becomes hard to imagine what life would be like elsewhere. Uh, and then, of course, the longer you stay, uh, the, the the more you kind of preclude the possibility for uh, productive life uh, elsewhere. I mean, you get to an age where it, it wouldn't make practical practical sense. And so I think we on the outside tend to, to imprint the things that matter to us on that decision, and politics is, is one of them. But I, I really think there's a genuine pulling away from some of that once you're there for a certain amount of time. I certainly think being, you know, from my vantage as a law clerk, I I did see what you're describing. The the court is in many respects, very removed and very, it can be very isolating. If you talk to some judges who get on the bench really young, uh, those are the ones, you know, the, the judges who go on the bench in their 30s, and I'm not necessarily just speaking to the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. more the lower federal courts, those are the ones you wind up seeing leave the bench for, for follow-on careers, which is a very rare thing. And I think it is in part because they realize that it is a very isolating experience. So one of the things that I think that tells us is how important the life experiences are of the judges and justices before they go on the bench in terms of what they bring in terms of perspective so that they can draw on that Mm -hmm. in this isolated environment when the cases come before them that do. Mm -hmm. Uh, My last question is about the end of the book, which you referenced earlier and talked about how it was never supposed to be part of yeah. uh, the book. Talk about uh, talk about that afterward, putting it together and and making it part of uh, this work. It was excruciating, to be honest. Um, I I was still just reeling with grief, and the publisher, understandably, said, "You know, we need to fast track this book. We need to." get it into production. It, 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 it had started down that road 
but it was on a slower path. And I said, of course, there needs to be an afterword that contextualizes what this project is, how it came to be, and and uh, what has happened. And sitting down to write that in the immediate wake of her passing, as I said, it, it was just so difficult to do. It, it, it everything was still very raw and, and and painful. But what I tried to do was explain from the perspective of her law clerks how we felt about her, what she had done for us, the kind of person that she was. It talks about her legacy in terms of how she thought about the law, but the whole book is about that. And so what I also tried to do there was her legacy, talk about her legacy as a person, as a mentor, and as a public figure more generally. And I walked through what it was like to travel to Washington in the middle of a global pandemic, praying you don't get COVID, but feeling compelled to go because the idea of not going was just, it just never crossed my mind. I had to be there and and over 120 of us had to be there to, to stand vigil as her law clerks by her side when she came back to the court for her final resting um, at the court that is. And so I tried to capture all of those emotions and all of those feelings. And then finally, I tried to capture something we were talking about earlier, which was her optimism. This is someone who talked a lot about how much progress she had seen be made in this country on issues of race and gender in her lifetime and on other issues as well. And she was able to reflect at the end of a long life, 87 years, on how far we had come. And she truly believed we would we would keep going. We would we would keep building that more perfect union that the Constitution calls on us to do. And so I tried to end the book, even though I knew I was writing it during a very fraught time. The, the afterward that is this is this is September October of last fall. I tried to end the book on an optimistic note because I think that's what she would have wanted. Hmm. Okay, Amanda L. Tyler, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law and co-author of the new book, Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue with the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It was really wonderful to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That is going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow to talk with former U.S. Senator Carl Levin about his new memoir, and Congressman Dan Kildee will join the show. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's public radio station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.